Welcome back to Cunningham's Law Review, where our goal is to listen to the top artists and songs of the last 100 years, starting in 1920 and working our way forward. Four days a week, we review what we hear and share the history of popular music with you as we do. I'm Richie, and you're listening to Side A of episode 1922-2, where today we'll be hearing from Fanny Bryce, the original funny girl and inspiration of the classic film of the same name. We'll also be checking in on Paul Whiteman, the king of jazz, and Ted, Mr. Entertainment Lewis. Fanny Bryce, born in 1891 Manhattan, by 17 would have dropped out of school to work as a burlesque dancer. From humble beginnings as the child of immigrants, Fanny Bryce would find success early in her musical career and quickly move on to radio and film where she would earn two separate stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Her life would later be the inspiration for the Barbara Streisand film Funny Girl, which would use many of Bryce's songs and become iconic. But Funny Girl wasn't the first time that Bryce's adventurous life was portrayed on film, nor would it be the last. In 1939, Bryce sued and won for Invasion of Privacy when a movie based closely on her marriage to criminal Nikki Arnstein and even named after one of her popular songs, Rose of Washington Square, was released. Bryce sued and won and portions of that film were removed to make it less clearly based on her life. Following the success of Funny Girl, there was a sequel called Funny Lady, which was also well received but largely fictional. Musically, we last heard from Bryce in our 1921-4 episode, where she sang Secondhand Rose, and today we'll hear her second famously associated song, My Man. Since Paul Whiteman and Ted Lewis are artists who we've already introduced in some of our previous episodes, we don't really need to give their entire history here. However, there are three things you should know about them from our last review. Paul Whiteman, known as the King of Jazz, could be said to have started the big band movement that would evolve over the next 20 years into the height of the 40s swing movement. His average score of 16 in our 1920 reviews was one of the higher average totals for performers with multiple songs, and he would go on to become one of the most important performers of the decade for his work with George Gershwin. He improved in 1921 to an average of 16.75, but really started to show his stuff in the track Song of India. Whiteman was one of the first mainstream performers to popularize jazz as we know it today, but likely benefited from the lack of competition from black composers who weren't able to easily find work in the entertainment industry due to racism, but who were also performing innovative jazz tunes that we'll start to hear in the coming episodes. Ted Lewis was born in Circleville, Ohio in 1890 and was one of the earliest jazz performers to gain popularity. His catchphrase was, is everybody happy, but his performances in 1920 left him with an average of 13.3, so there's no clear answer that it was a yes. In 1921, he didn't improve much to an average of 14. His trilling clarinet would start him off on a path toward mastering the styles of many others and quickly incorporating them into his own repertoire. Specifically, his band would quickly assimilate musical styles and make them into their own. So let's stop talking about the music and let's start listening. For those of you listening to the podcast through Spotify, there's a version of the episode available to you which includes all of the music as part of the podcast, so you'll only have to press play once and everything including the music will play on its own. The episodes with built-in music are limited to Spotify, so if you're listening to this episode through a different service or on YouTube and still want to listen along to the music, a playlist of what we're listening to today is on Spotify and is called Cunningham's Law Review 1922-2. 
you don't need a paid account to access that playlist. You can also find a link to this episode on the Cunningham's Law Review subreddit at reddit.com slash r slash Cunningham's Law Review. And we want to know what you think about our reviews and the music we're listening to. So make sure to join us there, leave us an anchor voicemail, or reach out to us on Twitter at Cunning Review. That's all for side A of episode 1922-2. We'll see you for the reviews after the songs on side B. Welcome back to Cunningham's Law Review, episode 1922-2, where we're listening to songs from the original Funny Girl, Fanny Bryce, Paul Whiteman, and Ted Lewis. You're now listening to the B-side of the podcast, where we review each of the songs in today's music and talk more about the impact that these songs had. If you'd like to join the conversation, the Cunningham's Law subreddit will have a dedicated post for this episode at reddit.com slash r slash Cunningham's Law Review. We'd love to hear from you through an anchor voicemail or on Twitter at Cunning Review. I'm Richie, your host, and I hope you enjoyed the music, or at least heard something new. Today's artists were all very big players in the 1920s, with Whiteman and Lewis going on to become even bigger jazz stars, and Fanny Bryce moving from stage to screen and radio performances. Bryce in particular would have a long career of playing a young girl character whose naivete would annoy her parents as she asked questions that pointed out their faults. If you want to look it up, the show was called Baby Snooks, and there's some of it on YouTube, but overall it's pretty tame by today's standards and you'd be fine skipping it. But what about her music? In My Man, Fanny Bryce brings us a basic song about a man that she loves. I'm honestly surprised that this became her best known song. But it is obvious why she became the most well known of the many that sang this song. Bryce is extraordinarily schmaltzy and she almost comes close to pulling it off with her melodramatic tone and voice acting that was probably impressive for the time. But it hasn't aged convincingly well, and she earns a three in innovation and mastery. Overall, the song just doesn't make much sense, because she loves her man, despite him being pretty much worthless by her own description, and she's most upset by the fact that she can't leave him because she knows she'll just come running back to him. It simply doesn't make a whole lot of sense, and we don't get enough context for it to be convincing, and so that hurts the authenticity, earning a three there in spite of the more or less convincing performance from Bryce. For artistic statement, the song receives a two. And to be clear, the statement is there, but it's portrayed in such an over-the-top way and without proper exposition that the tone becomes almost laughable, which hurts the statement. Finally, I was surprised at the slowed-down version because so many of the other jazz instrumentals have been much more lively, but this more dramatically paced one fits when the lyrics are portrayed as they are with Bryce, but that pacing trades cohesion for catchiness, and the song receives a 2 there, for a total score of 13. If you were hoping that I'm an Indian would rescue Fanny Bryce's overall average for 1922, don't hold your breath. Because in this song, stereotypical music and ridiculous racist caricatures are thrust in your face right from the beginning, for the sake of what amounts to a knock-knock joke. Bryce pretends to be a Jewish woman, well, she actually is a Jewish woman, but in this she really hams it up, who was kidnapped by a Native American chief and made to be his wife, which is kind of like Game of Thrones, but with less incest. 
The song is just bad, and not even performed well, with some of the lyrics being stumbled over as Bryce affects a silly accent to hype up her stereotypical Jewish character, throwing in a sense of an English-as-a-second-language immigrant, and for that she receives a two in mastery. It was really interesting to see her do that considering that she herself was a Jewish second-generation American, and she didn't have the accent that was used to make it clear that the character, quote, Rosie Rosenstein, was a Jewish woman. Authenticity is a one, along with artistic statement. Catchiness is a two, since if you blot out the lyrics with the sheer force of will that Darth Vader used to choke people, the song has a fun beat. From a historical standpoint, this is the first time that I've heard a Native American influence in any of the music that we've been listening to, or even talking about a Native American topic. Unfortunately, it's a made-up version of Native American influence, and with this disrespect to indigenous people, we don't even have an innovation point to spare. So Fanny Bryce receives a 1 in that category as well. With a total score of 7, we haven't had a score this low since Marion Harris in our first episode tried to play a black woman in court who was accusing her husband of beating her. That's a pretty low bar, but between Marion Harris and Fanny Bryce, we seem to have a game of racist limbo going. It's especially important to note that the lowest score you can get at Cunningham's isn't 0, it's a 5, so we're only 2 points away from the bottom here. Between Bryce's two songs, we end up with an average score of 10 for her 1922 work, so maybe it's best that she moved on to radio pretty quickly. Paul Whiteman, on the other hand, brings us 3 o'clock in the morning, which with a 14 doubles Fanny Bryce's song. A slow clock chime leads us into this waltz, which is played well, but it sounds pretty old-fashioned in general. With authenticity and artistic statements of 3, innovation of 3 for at least involving solo instrumentation to break the song up, Catchiness of a two since it does nothing to hold you, and a mastery of three since it doesn't seem to challenge Whiteman's band, but they play it well enough. To me, it seems like this song was mostly recorded to sell as a record since it was well known as the original came out in 1919. The original was composed by Spanish-born Argentine composer Julian Robledo. The song, however, went on to sell well over a million copies, was written about in The Great Gatsby as a reflection of Daisy Buchanan's thoughts, and overall far outstripped its actual performance and content as far as I can tell. That's just how it goes in music sometimes. Sometimes you just hit. In I'll Build a Stairway to Paradise, Whiteman's band discusses building a stairway and includes rising and falling patterns in the music to support the idea of building up and walking back down. Again, this isn't a song that's pushing many boundaries, but it's interesting enough. It's just average overall and receives a 15 with threes in all categories. The song was written by Gershwin, and there were multiple performances of this song, including by Ben Selvin. Since this was originally for a Broadway show, and it's without lyrics here, it's easy to understand why it falls a bit flat in Whiteman's case. When you have the lyrics, the song gets a bit better, as you realize that the steps with which the Stairway to Paradise is being built is referring to dance steps, so this is really a Dance Your Troubles Away song. Moving on to Hot Lips, this is a song written by Paul Whiteman's trumpeter, Henry Buss, and would be a number one hit for the band. This song does a good job of highlighting the trumpeter, but overall it's not grabbing like I would have hoped, with the more standard arrangement of the banjo and supporting parts. This honestly seems like another song that was a big hit simply because it had Whiteman's name on it and receives a 15 overall. Honestly, I feel like that's pretty likely because if you think about it, there was no real radio stations at this time, so it's very likely you never heard a song until you bought it, brought it home, and put it on the record player. In cases like that, it's simple to understand how big stars would have a lot of brand recognition that would help them sell, 
even if they didn't have the best recorded version of that particular song. Now, Georgiana is a real flapper song, and you can immediately imagine women with bob haircuts dancing the Charleston to it. The drum beats are more interesting than in previous songs, and the sweeping clarinets are omnipresent throughout and add more complexity and depth to the song. There's a big change that comes in the middle in which the banjo and barbershop quartet give it a feel more like a southern song. The song is Whiteman's best so far this year, but only because he's had an average year and earns a 16 from threes in all categories except for mastery, which is a four, reflecting the more complex parts for all the instruments. As we look at Oriental, we have to remember Song of India. In Song of India, which we reviewed for our 1921 episode on Whiteman, the Paul Whiteman band was able to make a really interesting track from a classical source in Rimsky-Korsakov's Sotko, and he appears to be going back to that well in this song to see if there's any more material there that he can re-record as a jazz tune. Unfortunately, this version pales in comparison to the original piece by César Cui, which was released in 1896. If you'll recall, Whiteman led a life of classical music and orchestral performance before he became a jazz band leader, and he would have had a long list of songs to pull from in his mind. Unfortunately, what he was able to do with Song of India wasn't redone, since the band seems to be more or less playing the piece as written, without adding much flair to it, or imparting any of the richness of jazz that they had at their disposal. For trying something that worked once and not pulling a rabbit out of a hat the second time, the song receives a 14, with threes everywhere but an innovation which earns a 2 for this step backwards. Since the orchestral version is simply better than this arrangement, I've added it to the end of our playlist for today in case you'd like to listen to it. If you have the time, I would definitely check it out. It's a fantastic song that you may recognize, even if you didn't recognize it in Paul Whiteman's version. Moving on to Ted Lewis. I feel like Everybody's Step is another Ted Lewis song that wasn't that great, but he's at least getting better. The band steps all over each other though, and in ways that interfere with the finished product, and the horns sound shrill for a two in mastery. Authenticity, innovation, and catchiness, and artistic statement receive threes for average execution for a total score of 14. Similarly, Ted Lewis's Marie is a better version of Everybody's Step, with clearer playing that avoids some of the crowding in the first song to come across as more put together and professional. It receives the same score overall, but fixes the two in mastery for an even 15. That is all for today's episode, but there's Cesar Cui's version of Oriental following this part of the podcast. Tomorrow, we'll be back with a very special Friday episode that will introduce you to an all-girl bunch of hard rock badasses in our next episode of You Should Know. We want to know what you think, whether or not you agree with us, because Cunningham's Law states that the best way to learn something on the internet isn't to ask a question, but to post the wrong answer somewhere. So make sure to find the Cunningham's Law subreddit, where we have a dedicated post for this episode, at reddit.com slash r slash Cunningham's Law Review. We'd love to hear from you through an Anchor voicemail or on Twitter at Cunning Review. If you leave us an Anchor voicemail that we end up using on the show, we'll review an album of your choice in a special episode, even if it's your own bands. If you like what we're doing here, leave us a review on your favorite podcasting service and follow the podcast on Spotify. And if you don't like it, definitely don't mention that to anybody. Until next time, I've been your host, Richie, and you've been listening to Cunningham's Law Review. Our theme music is a difficult subject by The Insider, and nobody else works here. Music